perhaps uh, the most important uh, subject of the day really it might it might be anyway is that the <clears throat> uh, to do, to do a little bit of a review of uh, where we stand in our battle with COVID because of the new uh, vari new variety or uh, variant that has come upon us, and it's called the Omicron variant. So for some people might say, well, where did they get this name from? And um, unbeknownst to most of us, um, they decided early on to name all the variants by the Greek letters. So the first one was alpha, and the second one was beta. And then there was a gamma one, which didn't last long, but then there was the delta variant, which uh, is the predominant variant, um, which has caused so much of the extra problems uh, that we faced. Most of us don't remember that the, um, the uh, first um, uh, variant, uh, the one that came from China, uh, that caused the initial, all the problems, uh, was a much weaker variant than the ones that followed. And indeed, uh, the pattern seems to be that uh, if a variant wants to succeed in life, it has to be stronger than the ones that came before it. Otherwise, it just disappears quickly. Um, I remember when the beta variant came on, everybody was so surprised and so kind of alarmed uh, that this variant seemed to be stronger than the one that came before. But really it was the Delta variant which kind of shook things up and which caused um, uh, the majority of the deaths and illnesses that uh, the world has suffered. And um, that variant has managed to stay and to re replicate itself and is today, for example, in the US um, is the cause and Canada is the cause still of about 90, over 95% of all the cases are of the Delta variant. The Delta variant proved to be a much um, quicker um, spreader, much more contagious, and also proved to be um, uh, much more uh, lethal in, 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 in causing the severe illness in people that it, it caught. Now, um, how did we end? So if, if they go by the Greek alphabet, so Delta is like D, A, B, C, D. Uh, Omicron is an O. So it means that from the Ds to the Os, there's a lot of space. And I do remember reading about a Lambda vari variant very briefly, but there must have been a whole uh, bunch of other variants which came and went until we got to this Omicron one, which is like O in the, um, in the Greek alphabet. And it, it is sort of in the same place as the O in the Latin alphabet. So there were a lot of letters between uh, Delta between D and O that passed through. Um, what makes this one so different is that it, it's really very different from the uh, variants that have appeared up until now. And it was first described in South Africa and um, the scientists there worried about it right away because it was so different under the microscope. It looked so different from the um, from the COVID uh, variants that had appeared up until then. And they wondered because it's so different, would this variant be um, hard to treat? Would it, would it be susceptible to the vaccines? Would it be more dangerous? Would it be more contagious? So the moment they found it, they didn't know the answers to all those questions. And even, that, even now, not much later, it hasn't even been a month later, 
that we still don't know the answers to all those questions, but we do know certain things. One thing that we know is that it may not have come from South Africa, that uh, in, um, in uh, reviewing samples that were taken constantly, it seems as if there was a, um, there was a um, case in Holland or, yeah, that, that appeared before the first one in South Africa was described. So indeed, it, it might have actually traveled from Holland to South Africa um, rather than originating in South Africa where it, it got its kind of a first uh, publicity. But what is true is that in Southern Africa, meaning in uh, the Republic of South Africa itself and in Botswana and a couple of neighboring countries, um, there seems to be a collection of cases that were described before they were described anywhere else. Um, this variant has proven to be more contagious, three times more contagious than the Delta variant. So therefore it can spread much quicker. And if that's the case, uh, it, it may end up taking over uh, the, um, the sort of presence of COVID uh, all around the world. It might replace the Delta with its own uh, with its own variant because it's so much more contagious. Um, it's not early, it's not soon enough to know whether uh, it's a more harmful um, uh, variant. In other words, it could cause more severe Ill illness. So that's the part that's unknown. Just the fact that it appeared was enough to cause um, um, more crackdowns in travel, uh, more um, uh, uh, barring of, of travelers from one country to another. It caused the stock market to drop uh, because of the fear that the economy might slow down again and things might not be open enough uh, if, if this variant takes over. Um, according to, uh, according to uh, Pfizer, which is the company making the vaccines, they said that the booster shot Pfizer, in other words, the third shot seems to protect, seems to be the best uh, protection against this new variety than any of the other, um, than any of the other vaccines. Um, uh, there's still cases though of people who uh, were double vaccinated getting, um, getting uh, the Omicron uh, variant. And there was one uh, recorded case of somebody dying in Great Britain because of it. Um, <clears throat> in general now, uh, as was the case about a month ago, um, uh, cases are up, cases of COVID are up worldwide with the biggest concentration still in Europe and still in what we call sort of central Europe. That is the hotspot. Uh, in Canada, we have gone from about seven cases per 100,000 to 10. And Quebec is now the worst uh, province in Canada with around 20 cases per 100,000. But the death and the death rates are still very low. Uh, in Canada, we are losing, unfortunately, uh, 20 people a day, meaning that up until now, the whole country has lost around 29,000 people. In the United States, however, they are losing 1,300 people a day to COVID, which uh, would equal to about 200 in Canada a day. So their death rate is more than six times ours. Um, 
the um, the uh, emergence of new variants was always predicted because uh, it's happened before. And the longer that the COVID um, uh, uh, disease lasts in people, the more chances there are that new variants will emerge. Just like new variants of the flu emerge every single year, many different variants, many different strains emerge. And for that reason, it's very hard to have an absolute weapon that will uh, solve the flu, just as it's very hard to have a weapon that will solve COVID because it keeps changing all the time. Um, right now uh, in the United States, the, the worst off places are in the Northern states. Uh, and some of these Northern states have the highest vaccination rates. Um, New Hampshire uh, has uh, 93 cases per 100,000. So it's, it's, um, it's uh, more than four times the US average and more than 10 times, more than nine times the Canadian average, despite having strong vaccination records. So why do you think this is happening? It's because the cold weather brings people indoors. Um, the school children still have not been uh, thoroughly vaccinated uh, in the States. And so people have much more face-to-face -face contact, uh, much more closed rooms, much less good ventilation, and so the, 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 the COVID disease can spread more easily, obviously, indoors than outdoors. Um, the southeastern states, places uh, you know, like Georgia or, or the Carolinas or Florida, have uh, among the lower, lower rates of vaccinations, but they also have the lowest amount of cases, um, uh, partly because, uh, again, people are outside much more. And also that having the experience the disease once does give a certain amount of protection uh, to people from catching it again. So it's a kind of a, uh, having COVID itself gives you not as much protection as a booster, but still it gives you some protection. Now, <clears throat> ironically, ironically, the state in the US with the highest death rate from COVID is Kentucky. Um, that, in that state, 59 people are dying every single day. Now, you've all seen the pictures of the damage and the tragedy that the tornadoes caused in Kentucky. Uh, it's not clear how many people have died in Kentucky because of the um, tornado, but somewhere around 100 people is about going to be the, the, the number. So what that means is that it's, it's less than two days worth of people dying in the state of COVID. And yet you don't see this panic um, in, in, in Kentucky. Uh, you don't see this desire to battle COVID. You don't see this desire to take all means possible to um, fight the disease, even though that state has got the highest rate of deaths in the whole country. And even though, uh, even though, um, two days worth of COVID deaths in Kentucky equals to the, um, the, the deaths caused in the tornado. And, you know, there's so much more publicity and so much more news coverage and so much more speeches and so much more governors, uh, the governor, um, you, you know, uh, appearing so distraught. Uh, you wonder why aren't they so distraught over the continuing COVID um, death toll in that state? Um, and I guess the reason is, is because news sells, pictures sells, 
um, you know, uh, uh, you, you, you can't really record a COVID death. And it happened one by one in a hospital. But when you go and see the destruction of the tornado caused, it's much more newsworthy. I think there's a phrase, but I can't remember what the phrase is. Something sells. Um, the state now in the US with the highest rate of COVID is Michigan. Uh, the highest rate of COVID deaths, I should say, is Michigan, the highest number of COVID deaths, not the rate. In Europe, uh, Slovakia, uh, Czech Republic, and Belgium all have over 125 new cases per 100,000. The US as a whole has 36 uh, cases, and Canada is now up to 10. So it gives you a, an idea of how wide spread the gap is between countries which are severely affected and countries which are now taking measures to close their societies down in part or in whole, uh, forbidding traveling, uh, <clears throat> closing down schools, closing down um, transportation, closing down restaurants, uh, requiring masking everywhere. I can tell you that here uh, where I am right now in Florida, uh, masks are practically unheard of. Uh, in stores, out of stores, in gyms, um, inside, outside, there's almost nobody wearing them because um, of, of the uh, sort of maybe attitude of the governor, um, because of the low case rate in Florida, uh, because of the, um, the uh, as I said, the um, previous contact with COVID has given people some immunity. Uh, you know, all of the above are explanations of and why the behavior here is really quite different from what it was uh, and from what it is back, uh, back in Quebec. Um, in terms of actual deaths from COVID, the death rate, Hungary is the highest in, in the world. And that's a country which has really suffered before from uh, high death rates. And then they sort of uh, went downhill and then came back up again. And uh, it also shows that there is a correlation between vaccination rates and death rates um, once the disease gets, uh, gets, uh, get, penetrates into the country. So uh, Hungary, like a lot of Central Europe and Eastern Europe are far less vaccinated than Western Europe. And um, you know, the, the fact is that um, this is what causes the, higher, the highest death rate. And yet, an Omicron is not yet widespread in Europe. Um, in the UK, uh, the caseload was doubling every few days. And that, that's where Omicron has caught, caught on. Um, um, I was reading that in Kingston, Ontario, they've got the highest level of cases since COVID began in March 2020. And uh, it could well be that by Christmas time, in other words, another couple of weeks, that the Omicron will be so um, dominant that it will take over the, the majority of cases in Canada. So that's just a kind of a, a heads up, we'll call it. And it's a, um, it's a kind of a um, reminder that uh, people, all of you and all of your friends and, you know, should get their booster shots if they haven't already got them. And your children and grandchildren should also get vaccinated because that's the best protection uh, against this new variant that, um, you know, that we, we've got. Um, but also on the COVID front, it's been shown that the uh, medication developed by Pfizer, a pill, 
to treat people who already have COVID has turned out to be really quite effective. And, um, and uh, that is really going to be a kind of a, we'll call it a, uh, a second um, weapon. Uh, you know, the first weapon being the vaccination and the second weapon being this pill, which has really had good, good results. I think maybe even better results than the, the people first thought or Pfizer first thought. It's proved, proven to be really quite effective. So all in all then, if you compare our situation today with March, 2020, when, when this whole tragedy uh, began, um, we're you know, uh, practically two years down the road now. And uh, you know, we're in a far better place in terms of knowledge, in terms of ability to uh, prevent it and in uh, terms of ability to treat it once it gets, uh, once it gets, uh, you know, one, once people have gotten sick. So that's, that's uh, enough of that uh, little subject. Um, some people have um, um, looked at, uh, uh, you know, the, the tension in the world heating up and, um, uh, have pointed out that the the possibility of a, an invasion of Ukraine by Russia is maybe one of the the biggest threats to world peace, and um, it's worth mentioning, although it hasn't happened yet. Uh, Russia has invaded or has taken over territory already from the Ukraine, once in the Crimean Peninsula, taking over that part, and another taking over some of the parts of eastern. Ukraine, which were Russian speaking. And um, a stalemate has developed on that front whereby um, troops uh, are facing each other, uh, Ukraine against Russia. And um, there's still part of Russian speaking Ukraine, which is, um, which is uh, not controlled by Russia, which is um, you know, owned and occupied by the Ukraine itself. And um, if Mr. Putin wants to be a sort of a world threat, if he wants to promote himself as a power, uh, military power is one way of doing it because he has no, no real economic leverage. Um, the economy of Russia is kind of stalled out, uh, affected by the same world uh, events that have affected all the rest of the world. And um, if he wants to make his name on the world stage uh, using force or threats of force is the way that he's doing it. And he's done it before. Um, you know, he's occupied uh, uh, parts of Georgia, the country of Georgia. He's occupied parts of the Ukraine. Um, he's threatened uh, uh, other neighbors uh, in the Baltic uh, by moving troops up to the borders over there. And, um, you know, he, he uses this as a tactic to promote his own uh, position uh, when um, his popularity goes down in Russia. The easiest thing to do is to, um, to promote a world threat uh, or a neighbor's threat and to um, then say, okay, now we have to fight against this threat. So uh, this is part of the playbook that he's been around, he's been doing for 20 odd years. And uh, the world is not willing to confront him. Um, remember that the Ukraine is not a member of NATO, that um, uh, the world is not obliged to defend the Ukraine. Uh, it's, it's Putin's idea 
that former Soviet countries, especially Belarus and Ukraine, are really um, sort of uh, beholden to Russia. And um, he also doesn't want to uh, create a kind of a, an enemy on the border of Russia who might encourage Russians themselves to uh, kind of rebel against Mr. Putin's rule. So that's why this standoff is there. Um, America's willingness to get involved in a conflict like that is unproven. And, and, and you know, looking at past history, unlikely. You might remember that uh, President Trump uh, always felt that it wasn't worth it for the US to get involved in any foreign wars because what does the US get out of it? Um, and uh, the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, the US withdrawal uh, from Iraq uh, has shown the world that the US is just not as willing to get involved in foreign adventures as it used to be. So that kind of leaves the field open for Putin to uh, threaten Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is not a strong country. Uh, Ukraine is not an economically uh, advanced country. Uh, in many ways, um, Russia still holds economic power over Ukraine because um, the source of uh, the gas and oil that Ukraine needs is Russia itself. And um, it can turn the taps off whenever it wants. And so um, definitely Putin has a stronger card to play uh, than the Ukraine does. All the Ukraine can do is appeal to, uh, especially to the European Union to say, look, that if you allow Russia to bully us, if you allow Russia to invade us, well, who's gonna be next? Uh, it could well be uh, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, which are members of uh, the EU and uh, are smaller and weaker countries than Ukraine. And um, the Ukraine can make the case to Europe that if you allow uh, us to be uh, invaded, then it's only the next step before uh, other countries in Europe, especially the former Soviet bloc uh, would come under the, uh, the uh, you know, uh, rule of Putin or the, the threats of Putin. Remember that Putin has uh, appointed himself pretty well to be leader for as long as he wants to be. He doesn't face any real domestic opposition in the country. Uh, the press is controlled. The electoral system is rigged. Um, he, the the um, secret police that he has enlisted uh, to help him are, are effective. Um, there is no, there is opposition to him but he's arrested uh, some of the prominent opposition leaders like Mr. Navalny, who's in jail. Um, he suborned the judges to, um, to, to do whatever he wants. And, um, you know, Russia is being run as a kind of a one man, not a one party state, like uh, it was under communism, but under sort of one man rule. Um, and uh, no one is threatening to, uh, to upend Mr. Putin uh, at this point. He's also, I think he's now about what, 70 years old. So he's not old, old for a leader. He's still got plenty of good uh, years left in him to, uh, to carry out whatever he feels is right for himself and for the country. And so um, uh, the, uh, the example of the deterioration of democracy in Russia 
is uh, one which has been experienced in, in many other countries as well. Um, which uh, brings us to uh, actually the subject I wanted to speak about most about today, which is elections, they're very important elections, which are gonna be taking place in Chile of all places uh, on December the 19th. So in other words, this coming week. Let me check my time for a second here. Okay. So that's really what I would like to speak about for the rest of the class. Let's speak about Chile as a whole, the country, its history, the politics, the importance of that country, and to learn a little bit about it. It's a country that I visited myself uh, and really uh, was quite impressed by the country. And it's a country with an interesting history and um, with uh, problems which are both uh, unique to its own place and to uh, the rest of South America as well. So let's uh, speak about geography knows that Chile is this very long, narrow country on the west coast of South America. It's thousands of miles long and only hundreds of miles wide at its widest point. So it's like a, a long, thin cigar or a long, thin string which goes uh, from the Peru, um, which is in the middle of Central uh, of South America, all the way down to the very tip, the very southern tip of Central America. And at the very bottom of Chile, uh, you are really quite close to Antarctica. And uh, the, the sort of um, uh, huge length of this country um, means that its topography, its geography, its weather, its climate is so completely different from one end to the other. So at the very, very top of Chile, you are in the driest place on earth. Uh, the place that gets the least amount of rain uh, in the whole wide world, even including the Sahara Desert, even including uh, Saudi Arabia, even including um, you know, the Persian Gulf, places that you think about as being completely hot and dry. Uh, nothing is drier in the world than, um, than the northern desert of Chile, the Atacama Desert as it's called. Um, uh, you know, it averages less than two inches of rain a year. And many, many, many years, it doesn't rain at all. So, uh, and people have been living there. People have managed to live there um, since pre-European um, pre times. So uh, the uh, indigenous people of, Ch of Chile managed to figure out a way to uh, live in a desert um, and um, lived there until the arrival of the Spanish. So um, it means that human beings are able to adapt. They're ingenious enough to figure out ways to get water and food, even though they might be living in inhospitable uh, places. If you think of it, <clears throat> the largest countries in the world, like uh, for example, Canada, the US, uh, Russia, uh, China, and Brazil, those are the largest, um, physically largest countries, and even if you think of Australia, they're all countries that are more east-west than they are north-south. Uh, the distance between their eastern points and western points is bigger than the northern points and southern points. And Chile is the only country which, um, you know, in that sense is so long uh, north to south, but has no existence east to west. 
And the explanation obviously for that is that the Andes mountain range uh, is what divides Chile from its neighbor to the east Argentina. And the Andes mountain range runs right down uh, the, um, the uh, we'll call it the Western part of South America. And so everything to the west of the Andes is Chile and everything to the east of the Andes is Argentina. So that forms a natural border and um, that's why the country is so long and narrow. Um, it, um, uh, it uh, as I said, um, its uh, situation is quite unique in South America. Um, and it's also uh, kind of unique in that, uh, like uh, Argentina and Uruguay, the majority of its population is of European descent. The majority of the population is not of indigenous descent, like it is in, let's say, Bolivia. Uh, and it's not of mixed descent or mestizo descent, like it is everywhere else in uh, Central America, Mexico, all the way down to uh, Brazil and to uh, uh, <clears throat> Colombia and the other countries, Venezuela, the other countries in South America. In most of those countries, the majority of the people are mixed between a sort of a Spanish indigenous mixture uh, with some black uh, people mixed in as well. Uh, but in um, Chile and in Argentina and in Uruguay, uh, the people are uh, not exclusively European descended, but majority European descendant. And if you ask them, even the ones who are have, have um, uh, some indigenous background to them, uh, they will most likely claim that they are of European descent exclusively. So it is a kind of a white face on the country uh, with a very important um, indigenous uh, minority whose um, strength and unity and resistance to Spain and resistance to the sort of Chilean um, administration has been uh, continuous up until these days, up until this day. Um, <clears throat> uh, the like, like, like all of South, like all of South America, uh, uh, it was conquered by the European powers, uh, Spain in particular, uh, in the 1500s. So uh, Spain in its heyday managed to control all of uh, pretty well North and Central and South America, except for Brazil, which was in the hands of the Portuguese. And um, even uh, going into uh, uh, the sort of Southwest of the US, um, including the states of uh, New Mexico, Arizona, California, Colorado, Texas, all of those places uh, you might remember, or even if you don't remember, um, were controlled by Spain uh, starting in the 1500s and uh, were eventually lost in, in North America, lost to the Americans um, only in the 1800s. So the Spanish presence uh, in a certain sense in, in, in the US is longer than the American presence has been uh, in, in some cases. Um, <clears throat> Uh, and the Spanish kind of, we'll say, ruled and dominated uh, all of Central and South America for uh, at least, 
well, close to 300 years before they were evicted and, and tossed out. Uh, what the Spanish did was, of course, to bring uh, disease, uh, to uh, wipe out a, a lot of the uh, indigenous people, uh, either on purpose or not on purpose. Um, they, of course, were interested in exploiting the natural resources of South America, the, especially the minerals, the silver, the gold, uh, the, the forest products, the timber. Uh, and pretty well, they milked South and Central America for whatever they could get. Uh, they also brought slaves to uh, Central and South America to work on uh, plantations. Uh, it could have been um, sugar plantations uh, in the main, but there were also other uh, types of uh, crops that were grown by the Spanish, um, you know, using slaves. Um, in Chile in particular, uh, there was one group of people called the Mapuche who resisted the Spanish so hard that the Spanish never managed to overcome them or conquer them. And uh, they remained kind of, um, uh, in a way, uh, self-governing for quite a long time before their defeat. Um, now, uh, history, of course, never stays still. And um, they, um, uh, in the beginning uh, or end of the 1700s, beginning of the 1800s, uh, a guy named Napoleon in France ended up conquering Spain. And when he conquered Spain, of course, he, he inherited all of the Spanish possessions in the New World. And at this point, um, because Spain was uh, conquered by France and because it didn't have any real say over North America anymore or South America, uh, people who wanted their independence from Spain used the opportunity to declare independence, which is what many of the um, countries did um, in the um, uh, uh, immediately following the Napoleonic Wars. Um, you know, in the, in the 1820s, the 18 teens, uh, a lot of South America became independent from Spain. In fact, the only places that didn't uh, become independent from Spain at the time were um, Puerto Rico and Cuba. Uh, they remained with the Spanish crown until uh, the late 1890s. Um, but the other countries declared independence. Now the question becomes, well, okay, so they declared independence. It's understandable that just the way um, the Americans tossed the British uh, uh, out of uh, North America, um, that the South Americans tossed the Spanish out of South America. But then the question becomes, well, why didn't they become one country on the model of uh, the United States? Uh, how is it that they became so many different countries, even though they were all ruled by the same ruler, even though they all practiced the same religion, even though they all spoke the same language, Spanish. And, uh, you know, had they become one country, uh, perhaps the whole, um, the whole history and the whole outlook and the whole power uh, structure would be different in South America. But although there was a kind of an effort, there was some effort, to unite all of South America under one uh, flag. I mean, of course, we're leaving Brazil out because they were not part of the Spanish empire. But um, 
Simon Bolivar, one of the fathers of kind of independence in South America, made an attempt to unite what he could, but it didn't last. And some countries just didn't want to be part of his uh, effort anyway. And sort of regional rivalries, personal rivalries, um, uh, you know, uh, let's say the, the, the kind of idea of, uh, I'd rather be a, a big fish in a small pond rather than being a, a small fish in a big pond, that sort of thinking uh, more or less uh, um, took over the uh, political class in South America. And remember that the political class in South America were the landowners. Um, uh, the, the, uh, there was no middle class, there was no educated population uh, to speak of. Uh, the church strongly backed the uh, land landowning class in South America. And so uh, the um, independence of various countries became a fact in the uh, 1800s. And uh, many of these countries sort of suspected their neighbors and had more against, more. The, there was more dividing these, these countries than there was uniting them. We'll put it in that, in that, in that sort of sense. Um, <clears throat> Um, the, um, the, uh, uh, I'll just go take a look over here. Um, so, uh, Chile uh, became independent from Spain in 1818. It's a little bit earlier than some of the other countries. Um, uh, but, um, What's particularly interesting about Chile is that uh, they did encounter this very, very strong resistance from a group of Indians uh, or indigenous people called Mapuche, who lived in central southern Chile. And the Chilean, the Chilean government tried to use a few different tactics to kind of um, defeat them. Uh, one of the tactics that they used, interestingly enough, was to try to take Europeans, immigrants and settlers and, and settle them to the south of where the Mapuche lived. In other words, to sort of surround them on two sides with, um, with uh, Europeans and leave them as a kind of an island in the middle, uh, southern middle of the country. And so in the 1840s and 50s, Chile, uh, encouraged um, Germans of all people to come to Chile and settle to the south of where the Mapuches lived. Now remember that in Europe in the, 18, in the middle 1800s, in the 1848, there was a very large rebellion uh, of Central Europeans um, against uh, the uh, ruling Austro-Hungarian Empire and against the um, uh, Prussia um, this was a rebellion which wanted to bring democracy and liberalism to, um, to a continent which had briefly, in a certain sense, experienced it under Napoleon's rule. And then uh, when, um, the, when the French were defeated, there was a counter-revolution and all the old kingdoms were put back in, in their places. And there was a sort of a strong... Um, counter-revolution, 
um, a strong conservative uh, era in Central Europe. And people who were who rebelled unsuccessfully uh, were fearing for their lives. And many of them left to go to, um, to North and South America. And that's how these Germans ended up in Chile. It was a very large community that were put there and they stayed there. And in fact, uh, the odd part is when I visited uh, Chile in um, oh, maybe 10 years ago, this community was still there uh, where they were. Uh, obviously over uh, 150 years uh, or more, they assimilated um, and uh, they assimilated into uh, Chilean and Spanish uh, uh, kind of uh, living, but they retained their kind of uh, cultural distinctiveness uh, helped by the German government of today who established schools and hospitals and encouraged the, the German community to, uh, to keep on learning the German language. And, um, and, so, uh, and so they did. Um, uh, there were wars, actual wars in South America in the 1870s. And one of the wars was between Chile on the one side and Peru and Bolivia on the other side. And uh, this had to do over uh, competing claims for territory. And uh, Chile won the war and uh, they deprived Bolivia of a sea coast in Northern uh, Chile, what became Northern Chile. And um, uh, the, uh, there was also quarrels with Argentina over their mutual boundary. And by the end of the 1880s, the, all of these things were settled and Chile became the sort of country that we know of uh, today. One of their first sources of wealth, believe it or not, was bird uh, droppings called guano, uh, which was used as fertilizer. And this competition for guano deposits is actually what set off the uh, war between uh, Chile and Peru. And um, then uh, copper was discovered in Chile and the Chile today is the world's largest producer of copper. And copper, as you know, is such a valuable uh, resource because it's used in all matter of wiring and all manner of uh, electrical uh, transmission. And since electricity is so important, and uh, you know, since even you know, with the new um, new age of um, of electrical uh, generation and solar power and wind power, you still need wires to bring all these things to uh, a market and. And copper is one of the main ingredients in that, as well as in pretty well every other industrial um, uh, in industrial material. And so copper has such a wide range of uses that its uh, demand has, has, has only increased. Um, and the price of copper jumps around, it jumps a lot. Uh, so it goes from somewhere around $2 a pound to $4 a pound uh, but it, it's still a relatively, uh, um, you know, expensive metal compared to many of the other ones. And uh, Chile is the world's largest producer of copper. Um, and so that has kind of underpinned the Chilean economy uh, for the last 50 odd years. Um, now, uh, uh, Chile um, developed a kind of a moderate um, uh, political 
uh, life uh, starting in the 1800s. And so from the 1800s really up until uh, 1970, there was uh, an alternating uh, democratic elections between we'll call them center left people and center right people. Um, and Chile in general was a kind of a socially conservative country where the Catholic Church uh, maintained sort of a bit of a stronger hold than in other places. But still, um, the uh, development of the country, uh, the democracy of the country, the wealth brought in by the copper industry um, gave, gave the country a kind of a, we'll call it a second star status in South America. Uh, the big stars being, uh, let's say, Brazil and Argentina. So uh, Chile was a kind of in the second rank, uh, but quietly just uh, going, out, going about its own, its own business. Um, in 1970, though, things changed. And um, uh, a politician named Salvador Allende got himself elected uh, in a three-way race where he got 35% of the vote. And he represented a kind of a much more radical, um, uh, a more hard left um, philosophy than all of his predecessors. He wasn't a communist per se. He didn't want to take over the whole country, but he did want to redistribute the wealth, which in Chile had always been kind of skewed. In other words, um, the wealthy classes, the landowners and some of the big businessmen really um, uh, accounted for a huge percentage of the wealth in the country, not, not unlike everywhere else in, in Latin America, but um, uh, Salvador Allende wanted to kind of even out the social uh, 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 standing of the country to uh, cut the power of the wealthy and spread it out to the uh, uh, poorer classes of people. Uh, he wanted to nationalize the banks um, and uh, he, when, when the election happened, uh, because he had more votes than anyone else, the Congress uh, elected him as uh, president of the country by a large vote. So uh, he was president in 1970. Um, and there was this great fear of that socialism would uh, take uh, over in Chile, that Chile would become like Cuba. Um, that, uh, but in actual fact, uh, Allende's coalition that he made was kind of a left, a center left and uh, government. It wasn't a hard leftist type government. Um, he nationalized the banks. He partly nationalized the copper, iron, and nitrate um, businesses. He gave workers raises. He froze prices. He raised taxes on the rich. Um, you know, all of the things that uh, the uh, Democratic Party in the U.S. is being accused of doing by the Republicans. And needless to say, um, the president of the U.S. at the time was Richard Nixon. Uh, he tried to destabilize the government. Uh, he refused uh, credit to Chile. He, he, he ordered the World Bank not to give them any loans. And he kind of uh, initiated a sort of a boycott of Chilean um, uh, enterprises. And that led to inflation and economic stability. And those things led to strikes. And uh, in 1973, three years later, this general Augusto Pinochet uh, seized power. 
and um, supported by Richard Nixon, supported by the United States. Um, in this coup, uh, it's even to this day not exactly known what happened to Allende, but he apparently committed suicide. Um, uh, Henry Kissinger was uh, the Secretary of State at the time, and he supported this uh, coup. Uh, 2,000 people were killed. 28,000 plus people were tortured, 40,000 people were arrested, and um, uh, Pinochet tried to wipe out all of the leftist opposition in the country, which he did. Um, and then he went about uh, reforming the um, country uh, from an economic point of view, opening the country up to a foreign investment once again, encouraging um, a private enterprise, um, and um, he, um, he, he tried to sort of, uh, let's say, um, use his power to bring about the sort of conservative economic development that was being uh, sort of encouraged uh, by the US uh, for him to do. Um, it sort of worked in a way, it sort of worked and it sort of didn't work. And, um, you know, it's in other words, it worked at first, but you, the easy fruit to pick always gets picked at the beginning and then things kind of slow down. And that's what happened with Pinochet's rule. He also stayed in power, kind of a overstayed his welcome, we'll put it like that. Um, and in the 1980s, there was economic stagnation and demonstrations. Um, and uh, what Pinochet thought was that, um, you know, people loved him so much that he could risk a referendum to ask for a second term. Uh, the referendum failed. He didn't uh, succeed in, in, in sort of uh, uh, arranging the results beforehand. And he lost uh, by 56 to 44. So, you know, his term was not, he couldn't stay in office after that. Um, uh, the uh, following his, uh, the 1990s, when, when he kind of left power, there was a transition back to democracy. And, uh, you know, starting in 1990s, and um, there was again this alternating uh, sort of uh, center left and center right government uh, which took place uh, in Chile all the rest of the, uh, up, until, up until today. Uh, Chile ended up being the, the, um, the wealthiest country in South America per capita. And it wasn't that at the beginning because it was so isolated, uh, because it was off the European grid, um, immigrants didn't really come to Chile in big numbers. Uh, like they did to Argentina, to Uruguay, and to uh, Brazil, because you'd have to get over the Andes to get to Chile, or you'd have to go all the way around the bottom of South America to get to Chile, and people didn't really do that. Uh, Chile uh, certainly uh, closed itself off to any kind of immigration from Asia, in other words, from Korea or from China or Japan. And so the Europeans that did manage to come there were French, uh, British, uh, Germans, as I mentioned before, and Croatians. And um, if you think of the past few leaders that Chile has had, we've had uh, Michel Bachelet, who is of French origin. Um, you had um, uh, Pinochet, who is also French origin. Um, uh, you had um, uh, 
Um, uh, let's see who else we got here. Uh, uh, Michelle Bachelet, by the way, was one of the first female leaders elected in 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 the world, and certainly elected in South America. Um, Eduardo Frey, one of the was a Swiss uh, Swiss origin uh, pre president for a very long time. May, some of you may remember this. Uh, Chile had one of the strongest earthquakes ever reported in the history of the world, which was a, a, a Richter, a nine, nine point uh, on the Richter scale. Uh, and a million people lost their homes. Uh, 10 to 15% of the economy was destroyed. Uh, but also in 2010, the very same year, Chile um, had this amazing recovery of these miners. You might remember that the miners were trapped underground for uh, something like um, two months. And uh, all three, 33 of them were rescued in this sort of spaceship type, type arrangement where they bored down, um, you know, more than half a mile down into the earth and uh, brought them up in a kind of a spaceship, which was really a, a tremendous uh, moral boost for the country, we'll say. Um, uh, the um, the uh, kind of continuing, let's put it like this, is that, that when you look at obje the objective situation in Chile, it's relatively good compared to the other countries in South America. But when you ask the Chilean people themselves, are you happy? They all would say no. And I met some uh, Chilean immigrants to Montreal uh, in a park just this summer. And I was talking to them. I said, like, why, why would people want to leave Chile when it's such a successful country? And they said, well, the fact is that nobody's starving in the country. The fact is that there's halfway decent health care and halfway decent education in the country. But you, you have to work like sort of uh, just to make it. Like there's no real way to get ahead in the country that all of the money that you earn goes to pay your expenses and there's no way to sort of um, uh, let's say build a base for the future that that kind of thing so the, the most of the people in Chile are lower middle class but it's very hard to get out of that sort of lower middle class status to go up any higher um, and so there was this vote to change the constitution hoping that maybe by changing the constitution that they would be able to kind of even out the problems in the country. And uh, this vote passed and the governments that are supposed to be elected now are supposed to carry out this change. Um, the uh, actual uh, per capita income in the country at our, um, at our uh, money is about $23,000 US a year per person. So that's not poor not super wealthy, but it's certainly not a poor country. Um, and there is a big gap still between the wealthy and the non-wealthy in the country. Um, um, one of the interesting uh, demographic uh, elements of Chile is that it is home, believe it or not, to half a million people of Palestinian descent and to 800,000 Arabs as a whole meaning that they are uh, about 5% of the whole population. And uh, there are many countries in uh, South and Central America 
that have a very large um, Palestinian population, um, people who came uh, after the uh, 1948 war and who came uh, ever since then uh, from the refugee camps and sort of made their way for a better life in, in the new world. Uh, the current president of El Salvador, Mr. Bukele, he is of Palestinian descent. Uh, some of the top officials in Venezuela themselves are also of Palestinian descent. And, um, and so it goes. So Chile does have this very strong Palestinian community, some of whom are, um, are uh, quite anti-Zionist and quite anti-Israel, and some of whom are not. Um, there's about 18,000 Jews living in Chile, uh, living in a middle-class uh, uh, existence. Um, uh, Chile has about 17 million people and about 7 million of them live in the capital, the city Santiago, the sort of greater Santiago we'll call it. And um, the middle of the country is extremely uh, fertile. So uh, we all know how many agricultural uh, products are grown in Chile that we see ourselves. Uh, Chilean wine is kind of world famous now. Um, it's uh, fresh fruits uh, like grapes and plums and apples and pears. Because they're in the Southern hemisphere, uh, they grow at a time when these products don't grow in the Northern hemisphere. So Chile has a great market in Canada and the US for these relatively expensive um, uh, and, and berries, uh, the blackberries and blueberries. Um, they all get sent to us uh, during uh, their summer, which is kind of our winter. Um, uh, the um, the uh, wealth, well off, the, the wealth of Chile um, has resulted in immigrants coming from other parts of South America. And the tragedy of Venezuela has led to um, a million and a half other South Americans like Venezuelans or uh, Argentinians or Peruvians or even Haitians to move to Chile to try to make a better life for themselves. And uh, from a country being not really used to getting a lot of immigration, the past few years they've been overwhelmed with immigrants and uh, the country kind of didn't know what to do with all of these people and has started to crack down on the sort of open door policy that they had up until uh, up until now, um, the, uh, the these million and a half uh, Latin Americans form about eight percent of the whole population, um, or ten percent of the population, and they all arrived in the last three years. Um, the um, the uh, so I'm, I will get to the election in a few uh, minutes, but just to finish off about the country, how. Um, Besides its wine and fruit, it's really known for seafood. And um, because its coastline is so long, um, it, it has a, a, a very large industry raising salmon, artificial, artificially raised salmon, obviously, because there is no salmon present in South America. But uh, the conditions are so perfect for raising salmon and mussels that they are also big products of uh, Chile. One thing Chile does not have is Chilean sea bass. So, you know, we've heard of this wonderful fish, probably you've eaten it in, in restaurants and, 
and, and maybe bought it in a fish store and brought it home. It's one of the most delicious fish in the whole wide world. But when I went to Chile and I went to the largest seafood exporting city in the whole world, it's Puerto Montt, it's called, uh, and they had a kind of a retail fish market. And I went over there and I'm looking and looking and looking and I don't see any Chilean sea bass. And I asked the people, you know, do they have it? And they said, what is it? And I said, I don't know, because in English it's called Chilean sea bass. And they said, well, we have no idea what it is um, because they just didn't have it. Uh, I finally actually found someone who spoke, um, you know, enough English to understand what I was talking about. And he said that in Chile, uh, that fish is called um, uh, deep sea cod and that um, deep sea cod is not found in Chile that it's, it's found in Antarctica. And that's where people do fish for it is in, in a, around the edges of Antarctica and between Australia and Antarctica. And um, uh, it's not really known in Chile, people don't uh, eat it. They eat lots of fish, loads of fish, um, um, uh, you know, all kinds of shellfish and uh, <coughs> all kinds of local kind of fish that do, you know, they don't have here but they don't have Chilean sea bass. So that's a, a new name. Like all kinds of fish are given all kinds of weird names, you know, uh, but uh, Chilean sea bass doesn't live in Chile. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the elections. Uh, they, um, the uh, term of the current president, Mr. Pinera uh, is finished and he can't succeed himself. So like in many other places, they had um, a kind of a, uh, general type uh, election uh, whereby many people can run for president. And if nobody gets more than 50% on the first round, then the top two people get to run off against each other in the second round. Now, normally what happens is that uh, in Chile is that there's always a contest between the center right and the center left. Both the center right candidate and the center left candidate got eliminated in the first round. So you are ending up with a kind of, we'll call it a far right, nationalistic, Trumpistic, um, uh, Orban uh, in Hungaryistic candidate <clears throat> versus a uh, left candidate who would be something equivalent to the left wing of the Democratic Party, the AOC uh, type uh, candidate. <clears throat> And so that's who's gonna be running off against each other. So it's a real contest between the far right and the far left, we'll call it. And the far right candidate is a German descended candidate, Mr. Kast. And um, his father, and this is a German candidate, not of ancient German origin, but of recent German origin. His father was a member of the Nazi party in Germany in the 1930s. Um, <clears throat> The far left candidate is a Croatian uh, descended uh, person. And uh, remember I was saying how the, uh, I don't know if I mentioned it, but France, uh, Britain, Germany, and Croatia were the main contributors of Chilean immigrants in the 19th and early 20th centuries. <clears throat> and he's one of them. So the Jewish community in, in Chile has a choice between a, a far left candidate uh, um, sort of backed or, or uh, some of whose friends are affiliated with uh, Maduro and Venezuela and Castro uh, versus a German descended um, candidate whose father was a member of the Nazi party. 
And um, it looks like that community, which is very small, as I said, are, are gonna vote more for the right-wing candidate because they're afraid of the left-wing um, implications of a candidate supported by uh, a huge Palestinian uh, community in Chile uh, and by the other left-wing uh, people. Although he himself, him, he himself, Mr. Boric, Boric is his name, uh, is not, um, uh, he, he's not the flaming radical that some people see. Um, see. Now the polls, and I just read the polls this morning, and it looks very close. The election looks to be really close, but the left-wing candidate is ahead in the polls by a few points. But of course, like everything else, it all depends on who turns out to vote. So um, uh, that's, let me see, uh, yeah. Okay, so that's basically uh, the story for uh, today. Uh, comments, questions, I'm now open for anything you'd like to ask me. So uh, Angela, take a look around the universe of, uh, of Zoom and see if somebody's got any questions or comments. Um, I would also just like to add that tourism is an important part of Chile's economy. And there's a tons of, uh, I mean, before COVID of course, and uh, there are tons and tons of things to uh, appreciate in Chile uh, of a natural point of view. So people who are interested in nature, in, 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 um, in wilderness, hiking, um, uh, in, the, in visiting Antarctica or close to it, uh, go down to the southern part of the country. People are interested in life in the deserts, uh, the um, sort of human remains that were found, the mummified mum mummies uh, would go to the north part of the country. And um, Santiago itself is a, a kind of not, I would call it on the first level of tourism. Um, you know, it's, it's not a kind of a, you know, Buenos Aires, a beautiful city like that, or, or uh, some of the cities in, in, in Peru, which are so interesting. It's a kind of a large uh, middle-class, uh, you know, uh, not especially attractive city, but every, everywhere, everywhere else in Chile is definitely uh, worth visiting. Um, Okay, anybody uh, comments, questions? So Mr. Dwoskin, there is a few questions and raised hands. The first question is, Turkish currency has gone down by almost 50%. Is it one of the reasons that Erdogan wants to renew his relations with Israel? Uh, okay, the Turkish lira has gone down by almost 50%. And is that one of the reasons why Erdogan wants to improve relations with Israel? Is that the question? Sounds... Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the Turkish lira is definitely the worst performing uh, large currency in the world. Um, it's really due to bad administration by uh, the country's leadership. Um, uh, Turkey has so much going for it economically uh, that uh, it, it's a shame that it all got screwed up so badly. Um, and one of the screw-ups is because the, the leader of the country is spending lots of money on foreign adventures, uh, lots of money in, uh, in, in its um, involvement in Syria, lots of money it's in its involvement in Libya. Um, it also agreed to house uh, millions of Syrian refugees, which cost money to keep up. 
Uh, it also has a very large standing army. In fact, it's the largest standing army in all of NATO. Uh, they have about 500 million, uh, uh, no, sorry, 500,000 soldiers uh, in their standing army. Um, and uh, the, um, the uh, crazy belief uh, of Mr. Erdogan that it, to fight inflation, uh, you have to lower interest rates. And the lowering of interest rates is what caused the um, fall of the uh, Turkish lira. Now, normally, when you want to fight inflation, you make it more expensive to borrow money. So therefore, it slows down the economy because people can buy less. But he, his idea is exactly the opposite, that high uh, interest rates are causing inflation because it causes things to be more expensive. And so by lowering interest rates, you lower inflation. No respectable economist goes along with this, and, and uh, the results are what the results are. Um, so for sure, this economic pressure, the, the, and, and of course COVID and the lack of tourism really hurt Turkey a lot. So um, the um, repressive measures, uh, the anti-democratic uh, way that he's been running the country, uh, got people upset who don't like him. And uh, the lack of economic success means that even people who like him start grumbling. And, um, you know, therefore his options are, are you, you stay in power, are to turn things around. And uh, he did say that he wants to improve uh, relations with previous enemies. And for Erdogan, the previous enemies aren't only Israel, but also Egypt. And um, uh, he said that he wants to improve relations with both those countries, um, you know, on conditions that are good for him. Um, remember that Turkey and Israel, although they don't have good political uh, relations, they have always had good economic relations. And um, there's lots of trade between the two countries. Um, there are huge, one of Turkey's big businesses is in construction. And there are Turkish companies doing construction in Israel, even as we speak, uh, developing uh, apartment blocks and, and doing public works and stuff like that. Um, uh, uh, it, it, Turkey has tremendous expertise in that area. And Turkey has also sent loads of uh, workers, of uh, just individual uh, construction workers to Israel to work um, and, um, you know, to make a better living that they would make back home. Um, so, um, you know, when all of his options are not there and he sees that Israel is be becoming successful in making a name for itself in the Middle East with relations with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain <clears throat> and closer, uh, a close deal with Egypt and a close deal with Jordan, um, you know, uh, Erdogan might get the feeling, well, it's better to uh, join them than to fight them. And uh, so that might be bringing him around. But of course, he conditioned his closer ties to Israel with Israel uh, treating the Palestinian uh, question uh, correctly. And um, it's not in Israel's interest or, or it's not in Israel's um, intentions to really change anything on the Palestinian front. So uh, if Erdogan wants to uh, improve relations with Israel, it, it has to be kind of uh, uh, without involving the Palestinians. So it remains to be seen in that way. His, his relations with Egypt, uh, 
deteriorated because um, the uh, the um, there was a one free and fair election in Egypt, and they elected a Muslim uh, Brotherhood president, Mr. Morsi, and that guy was tossed out of power by the military and by Mr. Sisi, the current the current president, and Turkey backed the old guy. Turkey backed Mr. Morsi. And so therefore uh, relations deteriorated after the coup of Mr. Sisi and um, you know, stayed bad uh, up until recently. And um, uh, so that's, uh, you know, his, his trying to improve things in the Eastern Mediterranean have to do with Israel and with um, Egypt. It's important to note that there's a gas pipeline which is contemplated to go between Egypt and Israel and Greece. And these three countries um, you know, wanted to get together to build a pipeline and they would pass through uh, areas that Turkey claims to be its own. So this is a complicating factor in this, uh, this, uh, this pipeline is not built. It's not even close to being built, but it's being envisioned, it's being planned, it's being looked at as a way to meet the demand for gas in Europe that doesn't come from Russia. So Egypt has a huge gas field. Egypt has also a huge gas, gas liquefaction plant. And um, some of the gas that Israel uh, has discovered on its own is supposed to be going on this pipeline into uh, Greece via this pipeline. Uh, some of it was being shipped from Israel to Egypt for liquefaction. Uh, so um, uh, Turkey uh, was kind of trying to block all this and they may decide that it's not a, such a great idea to do that. Um, so that's a, a little bit about that. But also, by the way, I don't know if you've heard that Erdogan's health is being uh, monitored, that it seems as if, and no one is saying this out loud, that he might be sick with something, we don't know what, and um, he, uh, you know, he may be on the way out uh, because of a health uh, issue. So we have a few uh, people that uh, raised their hands. Aviva, please unmute yourself and ask your question to Mr. Dwoskin. Hi, Aviva. She has problems. Yeah, she has problems yeah. on muting. I don't know why, but that's the way it is. Okay, so I'm gonna go to the next person. Yeah. I keep asking Hello. her to What language do they speak? In Chile? In Chile and in other countries. Okay, so uh, Spanish obviously is the common language in the country uh, by far and away. Um, uh, the, there are some, uh, uh, like under 5% of the people are um, of indigenous origin and they are trying to promote their and maintain their language, the Mapuche language, which has now been recognized, which uh, they've, made, they've come a very long way, uh, uh, you know, on the same sort of pattern as Canadian uh, indigenous people. Um, the Mapuche in Chile have gotten international recognition, international support. Uh, they uh, are promoting their languages, they have schools in their languages. So they have come a long way from, from what they were. Um, Spanish uh, obviously is the language in Chile, but I have to tell you that it's, um, 
It's not the most easily understood variety of Spanish. They have their own way of speaking. They leave off a lot of letters and they leave off a lot of syllables also. They, they sort of shorten the language and uh, makes it hard to understand for people who aren't native Spanish speakers. But obviously, uh, you know, if you are a, a Colombian uh, living in Chile or in a Venezuelan coming to live in Chile, uh, it pretty, pretty quickly you'll catch on to, uh, to their uh, accent and, um, you know, uh, way of speaking. The Argentinian Spanish is, you know, far more different from standard Spanish than uh, Chilean Spanish is different from standard Spanish. You should also okay, know. Thank you. Way. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Uh, Aviva, are you around? Uh, Mr. Baskin, she's not around. I mean, she's no. there, but I, she is around, but I, can't, I have to ask her to unmute herself again. You have to unmute yourself or else you, you can type your, you could type a question in the chat. You like that? Oh, she did. I see that you did. Aviva, you could ask your question to Mr. Doskin. You're unmuted. Well, I, I already asked the question. I asked it about the language and he answered me. Oh, okay, that was you. Uh, just so you should know, um, you know, the Spanish that's spoken all over Latin America has its differences, but all it's 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 of course it's mutually uh, understood by everyone. The sort of best so-called best Spanish is spoken by Colombians in uh, in 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 all of South America. That's that's the that's the uh, dialect or the accent or the way of speaking that's considered to be the most pure um, Spanish. Um, uh, so that's what that is. Okay, but, Steve, you know, oops, Steve yeah. unmute yourself and ask your question to Mr. Doskin. Okay, uh, hi, Hershey. Hi, Steve. Yeah, hi, I Steve. Just, I just, thank you, you're able to hear me? Are I'm sorry, I didn't, yeah, I am, I'm gonna just, if you don't mind, just let me just, I'm going to stand up one second until my air conditioning just came on, but I'm going to turn it down. Hold on. Okay. Yeah, I'm back. Yeah, it's so hot here. It's like uh, 83 or 85 degrees outside. So wow. air conditioning comes on and makes, wow. a, makes a racket. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to uh, go back to uh, COVID for a minute. Why is it in Quebec, yeah. uh, as well as other places, there's not this push towards therapeutics like there is in Florida and Texas for monoclonal antibodies that uh, if you feel you're getting sick, you're able to take these antibodies and chances are you're, uh, you won't get as sick uh, you're less likely to be hospitalized or die. I think that, uh, that, that, that these vaccinations and boosters, uh, we could be vaccinated and boosted forever. That's, that's, that's not going to be the way out of this uh, situation and maybe part of the way out. But the real way out is, is therapeutics to treat us when we're not feeling well, when we're maybe getting this disease. Yeah. 
Were you able to hear my question? Um, yeah, first of all, I, I'll tell you that um, it's, you know what, uh, Angela, it, it, he kind of was cutting in and out, right? That's how I, that's how I heard it. Um, but uh, there is, there, you know, remember that COVID is a brand new disease that we've only been, it's really less than two years that we've been dealing with it. And think of how far we've come from nothing to be able to uh, prevent it and to treat it and to understand it. Um, it seems like for sure that this is going to be some sort of an endemic disease because it, it does uh, have the power to change itself. But this new pill that the um, Pfizer company has made, I, I, you know, I, I read the name of it. It's one of those medical names. But that seems to be really a very successful treatment to um, uh, help people recover if they aren't too far gone to start with. And this is going to probably be the main tool to actually treat COVID once, um, once people get sick with it. And it's, it's definitely uh, has passed all of its um, kind of um, uh, trials. And um, it, it's, it's being approved now for use in hospitals to treat people with COVID. So that's really a, a phenomenal, um, uh, you know, a phenomenal success. Um, for sure, vaccination is, is the main way to prevent it, but not the only way, um, because uh, the disease is so tricky that it can even uh, infect people who've been vaccinated. Now, remember that the flu is the same thing. The influenza is something that is endemic in the population. People get vaccinated for the flu and you could still catch the flu even though you're vaccinated. So it, it's on the same pattern that the flu is and um, um, that it will probably have the same ability to change the way the flu does. And it's gonna probably be, be with us for a very long time. This uh, you know this this uh, disease called COVID. So um, you know, imagine five or ten years from now, how much more we'll know uh, than we know already. And look at how far we've gotten from the very beginning, when people thought that um, you could uh, you know get COVID just by by touching something that somebody else had touched, and um, we just didn't know enough at the time. So. You know, we have come a long way in this in this uh, in this battle. One one puzzle that I still have is still question is that Africa is the continent which is by far and away the least vaccinated. It's a continent where by far and away people live in crowded, uh, unsanitary conditions. Um, and yet it's the continent which has been least affected by far by COVID. So I don't know why that is. I just, um, you, know, uh, you know, for sure there's under-reporting of cases and deaths, but if, if deaths were occurring at the same rate as they were occurring in Europe, you can't hide something like that. Rashid, you know, there's an easy answer to that, or at least as part of the answer. You have less obesity in uh, Africa. You have a younger population. You probably yeah. have fewer people with pre-existing conditions. 
uh, heart heart conditions uh, and right. so on and so forth. These, right. these are all the major factors that contribute to serious illness and death in COVID. So it's not any it's great true. surprise. Younger people yeah. may be getting it in Africa and, and they're getting over it. They're getting well from it and they, and they develop natural immunity from it. So it shouldn't be a big surprise. And therapeutics have been around pretty much since the beginning of COVID. But uh, it was treated in a political manner. You, 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 you couldn't talk about it. You couldn't take it. And after a while, it became difficult to prescribe. It's probably because there wasn't enough money in it. They have to wait for Pfizer and these other big pharma companies to develop things that they could make billions on before, before it'll be uh, acceptable to, to, to give to, uh, to everybody. Right. But you know what? The, the so-called therapeutics that were suggested, like this ivermectin, uh, and hydrochloroquine, um, which were promoted so strongly by uh, by the Trump administration, um, you know, were not effective, and it turned out to be, as you said, a political a political campaign. Well, well, I, um, I, I think I think that uh, it depends upon uh, you know which doctors you uh, speak to. There are combinations of things like hydroxychloroquine, uh, zinc, vitamin D. That 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 together uh, provided a uh, a measure of uh, of, of a you know therapeutic. Not 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 as far not as far as I not as far as I know, or not as far as the CDC knows. Otherwise, the CDC would be recommending these things as, as CDC as is highly the CDC is highly politicized, highly uh, politicized. I, I that that's where we disagree. That's where we disagree. I, I, okay. I also would say I also would say that uh, I did read somewhere about um, um, the African population having uh, been uh, exposed to so many different forms of um, diseases and germs in their daily living that uh, even before COVID, their defenses are already stronger. Um, you know, against many diseases uh, because of all of that, um, you know, sort of previous history of infection in other things that are not COVID. <laughs> so that's, that, that, that was one suggestion that was, some, well, sure. you know, some people made that. <clears throat> that suggestion makes a lot of sense. There are probably a lot fewer, excuse me, peanut butter allergies in Africa than there are in North America. <clears throat> Maybe, maybe I could tell you that in I could tell you that in Senegal, the peanuts are the, and 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 in a lot of the West African countries, peanuts are about the most common form of protein that people actually eat, because um, you know that's what they can afford and that's what they grew grew naturally for centuries already. I think if I'm not mistaken, I could be mistaken, but I think peanuts were brought to the United States by African slaves. Um, because that's what they were eating back there in uh, Senegal and Mauritania and places like that. Thanks, Arshay. Um, okay. Yeah, thanks. Angela, any, what, uh, anything else? Um, nope, nothing else that I see. Okay, so thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you, Angela, for hosting. I'm so glad to be back with you all, and we'll find something else interesting to speak about next week. Um, so until then, um, you know, stay healthy and stay well, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Mr. Dwoskin, and thank you to everyone listening 
in over the telephone and online. We shall see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.